Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krauss. We have a jam-packed show, so let's get right at it. Later, we'll meet Abba Abuquando. You know her from This Hour is 22 Minutes, but she's not here to talk about politics today. She has her eye on something much smaller. Tiny, in fact. She is the host of a new CBC gem show called Best in Miniature. So stick around and learn how creators shrink down their designs to itty-bitty proportions. We'll also meet C.S. Porter. We'll learn about how and why he sat down to write a thriller called Beneath Her Skin after being diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. We'll meet actor Manny Jacinto and find out how his character in the new Amazon Prime rom-com I Want You Back was inspired by two characters from his last TV show, the great sitcom The Good Place. First, though, my guest Kevin Hearn has earned accolades over the years as a multi-instrumentalist and musical director with the likes of the late Lou Reed, Canadian icons The Rio Statics, and most recently The Secret Path Band, which carries on the benevolent legacy of Gord Downey's project of the same name. He's best known as a member of the multi-platinum rock outfit The Bare Naked Ladies. The Canadian Hall of Famer has just released a beautiful new solo record called There and Then, Solo Piano Improvisations, and he joined me via Zoom to talk about it. talk a little bit about uh how this happened because you made it in kind of an unusual way we'll get to that in a sec uh but you were uh making a bare naked ladies record called detour de force and uh you were noodling around on the piano and your producer heard that and said hey let's 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 try something different is that sort of essentially the story yeah we were on location at ed's uh place and we were all sort of we were all living there and so we we'd all gather for breakfast in the morning but i would come up early in the morning and just sort of improvise on the piano and warm up and the producer mark howard uh said well what is that that's pretty and uh oops sorry <laughs> i'd say i don't know i'm just making it up and then the next morning same thing well what is that i said i don't know and he goes we should make a record like that I thought, oh, okay, that's interesting. And so uh, long after the, the Bare Naked Ladies record was done, uh, during lockdown, he contacted me and said, do you still want to do that, that record together? And that's how it started. And it's interesting because it is uh, uh, an improvised record completely. Uh, and you could have, I suppose, just sat down at the piano and mic'd it up and, and let it rip, but you chose to do... Uh, the recording in three different places. And tell me a little bit about why you, you chose this method and what it brought to it. How did it, it, it did this method of working enhance the, the project itself? Sure. Well, in my travels over the years, I've always keep my eye open for pianos that have sort of been left or abandoned in old hotels or uh, conference halls. And I always enjoy sort of playing them, thinking, wow, this may have not been played for a long time, and it's in this space. And, uh, you know, I went down for some, some medical uh, opinion down to the um, uh, John Hopkins Center in Baltimore, 
And, you know, it was a traumatic time for me, but I found this old piano in one of the hotel rooms, uh, hotel floors where there weren't any guests. And I improvised and I just recorded it on my phone. But what I improvised really was uh, beautiful and cathartic. And, uh, I, you know, I learned it after that and put it on my Common Sense record. But when Mark reached out to me, I thought, well, what if we find places that are kind of haunted that have an old piano and we'll go into that space and improvise being um, inspired by the energy in there. And because it was locked down and the pandemic, our, our options were kind of limited with mm. where we could go. But um, we chose uh, Quebec. We, we had a, a church that had been closed down and a hotel that was closed down and then a, a home studio. And what does each of those places bring to you? The home studio, I would imagine, a bit more intimate. A church, I can imagine, is just the, the open space. The piano would sound different in there uh, than it would in a, a closed-down hotel bar or a lobby or wherever it might have been. So what did each of those places bring to it? Well, the church uh, was so big. It was a cathedral that I couldn't, it affected the way I played. I had to respond to the space because you played one note and it would reverberate for half a minute. So I couldn't play a lot of fast sort of right. complex things. So you'll hear it, it's very spacious and slow and mellow, but also dreamlike. But being in the cathedral also brought me back to my days in St. Michael's choir where I you know, sang in the church choir every right. Sunday. and. Uh, there was one piece where I just walked through the church singing and eventually got to the piano and joined along. But uh, I found it uh, sort of a neat way to reconnect with um, my, my roots a little bit. Yeah, it sort of brings it all full circle somehow. Yeah, I felt comfortable in that environment. You're listening to Kevin Hearn on The Richard Krause Show. Find his new album, There and Then, solo piano improvisations wherever you buy fine music. What is the difference between uh, the way you wrote the songs on this album, which is an improvisational album, and then just writing a song that might be recorded by the Bare Naked Ladies or you on a different kind of record or, or another band. Is there a, a, a different mindset to it? This was very direct and raw and deliberately improved, you know, <clears throat> or improvised. Um, it was sort of like a meditation, you know, I'd ask Mark, to tell me where the piano would be. And I would walk for an hour through Montreal to that location. We wouldn't talk really, we'd say hello, but I didn't want conversations about sports or current events. It was just feeling how I felt after being in lockdown for a year. And, and I was improvising a lot at my, on my home piano. And so I was kind of training for this, mm. even though I didn't know it. Another aspect of it is, um, have you ever seen the jazz documentary done by Ken Burns? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a wonderful little interview with um, Duke Ellington where the uh, interviewer asks him, well, how do you write? How do you write your songs? And he says, that's not writing, that's dreaming. And, <laughs> and he does this, you know, whatever yeah. it might be, but it was such a beautiful little snippet and it really stuck with me. And that was kind of what I was trying to do. Well, and as you're trying to do that, are there tricks towards 
pushing yourself to it. You're a, a trained musician. You have worked in all sorts of different styles of music. But it, when you want to do something like this, is it better to, as you say, you don't want to talk about sports or anything beforehand. It, do you sort of wipe your head clean and just allow whatever happens to happen? Yes, but you can't do it completely. Otherwise, you would just, you know. You'd just you, be sound. Yeah, so <laughs> you, it's a balance of thinking right. and not thinking. And just really trusting your instinct, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the, the songs that we hear on the album, uh, how uh, raw are they? Are these all first takes? Are they all, uh, oh, did you go back and add things later to them? Uh, no, they're all, they're all first takes, except for one, there was one idea I had thought of before mm. in an improv and I revisited it, but otherwise there were no demos. There was no run throughs. There was no redos. Same there, time. Were, there were plenty that we didn't use cause they didn't work as well. So, right. Yeah. Saves time on rehearsal that way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you were uh, friends with Gord Downey, and there is a connection to his family here uh, on this record and the artwork. Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, well, you know, I had the honor of working with Gord and meeting his family, and um, I really love the artwork that his daughter Willow has been doing. She's been really blossoming as a painter and an artist. And I had a few ideas for the cover artwork, but I found her work was uh, sort of uh, abstract in the same way. It left a lot of space and didn't really define what the, what the record was, you know? So I asked her if she would paint something and she painted this beautiful painting while listening to the record. I could just like hold it up here yeah. if you don't mind. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. It's sort of for people listening on the radio. It it kind of puts me in the mind of um, of like looking inside the eye of a hurricane. Maybe uh, looking down. There's there's a but it's beautiful and sort of fluid looking. Right, and that's that that was sort of how I felt about the music. It's kind <laughs> of a you're going in, and it's yeah. a bit of a an, an, an adventure. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. 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 And I mentioned that I, I made a video with Mike Downey, Gord's brother. That's that, right. That's on YouTube if you want to see it. It's a song called Lou. Well, which was written in, in part anyway as a sort of a tribute to Lou Reed, right? Well, I didn't write it for him, but uh, I did sing the word uh, ooh during the yeah. song. And then when I was trying to find a title, I thought, well, that sounds kind of like Lou. And <laughs> What a nice, what a nice way to pay tribute to him. That's yeah, who who was a friend of yours? You were his musical uh, arranger and 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 partnered with him for many years. So it, it, it's a lovely tribute to look back. He treated me like a son, you know. And <laughs> so when I was uh, playing, I was reflecting on things in my life, people I'd lost, and people that I'd worked with. When you listen to it, is it? Uh, hard to go back and, and sort of imagine what you were thinking at that moment? Does it bring that back for you or does it take you to other places? Yeah, it's just a little moment. You know, it's like when a friend will say to you years later, do you remember that time we were at the so-and-so place and you said this? That was so funny. Yeah, and you don't. <laughs> 
you know, all the hours in my life I've, I've improvised on piano and most of it isn't recorded, but this little slice of it is. Yeah, so yeah. I hope people like it. That was Kevin Hearn on the Richard Krause Show. There and Then Solo Piano Improvisations is available wherever you buy fine music. My guest is Manti Jacinto. He's a familiar face from the television sitcom The Good Place, where he played Jason Mendoza, a deceased amateur disc jockey and drug dealer who seemingly wound up in heaven by mistake. Soon you'll see him in the Top Gun sequel, Top Gun Maverick, co-starring with Tom Cruise. Today, though, we're talking about I Want You Back, a very funny rom-com on Amazon Prime, where he plays Logan, the new boyfriend of one of the main characters. He plays an aspirational amateur theater director with luxurious hair. So, naturally, that's where we started the conversation. And I'm going to assume that was a wig. Was that a wig oh, you no, were wearing? Oh, no, no. It was, it was all mine, yeah. Wow. Yeah, the pandemic. The pandemic allowed me to, to grow it all out, so... <laughs> I was like, it was perfect. Uh, we found the perfect role for that hair. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. If for no other reason, the pandemic uh, paid off in that one yeah. small instant. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Uh-oh, party time. I love being single. I'm really looking forward to it. All the apps, getting on the apps. Yeah. That's going to be cool. Swipe left, swipe right. Who's ugly? Noah, he was the love of my life. Damn it. And is the love of mine. We can't give up. We have to get them back. I really think we can break them up in like no time. It's on. We have to talk about Logan, your character yes. here. Uh, Jason <laughs> Orley, the director, uh, told mm -hmm. you that Logan was the most pushed character in the movie. Yeah. So well, tell me what that means to you. Um, <laughs> when, when I hear pushed, I mean, I, I hear like, go big, go big or go home, right? So with, with Logan, he's, he's a, such a character because he has this obsessiveness over the craft of acting and then and, and like uh, this play, you know, he takes it so seriously. Like to him, this is like an, um, a Tony award-winning Broadway show, right. you know? Um, and that's how he treats it with, with these little kids, with the parents, with, with Jenny Slate's character. Um, so obviously we could push that a lot, but Jason still wanted a grounded sense to, mm -hmm. to Logan. Um, if, if we push too much, he becomes too much of a, of a character. He becomes too much of like this archetype. But we wanted to see like a different side of him as well, like um, his empathy for the kids, his loyalty, uh, his you know um, love for uh, for other high arts and languages. Um, yeah, so we wanted we needed to explore other things other than just his obsession over over acting and the play. Did you base Logan on anyone? You are you come from the world of dance originally. Yeah, you yeah, you yeah, took yeah. acting classes to, to to create um you know stage presence for yourself and then you you started getting work as an actor. Uh, yeah. And so you've been around you've been around a lot of people, a lot of teachers, a lot of directors, a lot of other actors. Did you base Logan on anybody? I mean I did a deeper <laughs> dive but if on the surface 
when I read the part of Logan, I was like, this is basically for the, the fans of The Good Place. Logan is basically a combination of Chidi and Tahani. So Chidi's like anxious, like his anxiety and like uptightness combined with um, Tahani's uh, love for finer things, right. finer wines, finer cultures. <laughs> so a combination of those two characters created Logan. We won't give anything away about what happens with Logan, but after we see him for the final time in the movie, what do you think Logan does after that? What's the rest of Logan's life like? Do you think about that kind of thing as an actor? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think about it, put it on a piece of paper, I pitch it to Jason so that we can have a sequel to it. I want you back. That's what happening. Um, yeah, no, like, to be honest, and uh, I don't think this is a spoiler at all, but like, there's a scene um, that was cut out uh, where, to just give you a glimpse of what Logan's up to next, he's in the hotel. We, we filmed this, but yeah, we had to take it out, I think. But um, he's in the hotel in the lobby and he is hitting on one of the bridesmaids, um, talking <laughs> about how he's this big time director. You yeah. know, he's pretty big in the, in the playwriting space. Yeah. Um, and he's just, you know, like it, at the end of the day, he's in a good place. He's, right. he's, uh, yeah, he's trucking along. He's not, <laughs> he's not down and out. He has, right. it's, it's hard to get Logan off track. You know, he's uh, moving forward. You're listening to Manti Jacinto on the Richard Krause show. See him in, I want you back on Amazon prime. Um, where does uh, Logan and a movie like I want you back fit into what you're doing right now? Because you're busy. I've been uh, reading about you and seeing all the things that you have coming up. There's a lot of stuff swirling around you right now. You've just come off four years of the good place and there's all sorts yeah, of yeah. things happening. Where does Logan fit into all of that? Are you trying, because it seems to me like, like you're just trying to do as many different kinds of things as possible. <laughs> yeah. Which is like cool, bottom right? line. Yeah. That's, that's what we're trying to do. I mean, the biggest appeal for this script and this character was the fact that I wasn't able to play. A, I haven't been able to explore a character like Logan yet. So um, yeah. So reading that script, um, going through that character, it was exciting. It was yeah. something new and, and scary a little bit. So yeah, it's, it's definitely purposeful. It's, um, you know, we're trying to stretch our muscles, do different things while I still can, you know, <laughs> while I still have the time and the energy. Um, yeah, and I, I feel that's why I was so drawn to, to acting in the first place, mm -hmm. to, to, to be able to hide in public and, and play different, different people. Yeah, in different, different situations, for sure. You grew up in British Columbia. And I'm, yes. I'm assuming you live in Los Angeles now. Um, do, yes. do you go back and forth at all? Do you spend any time in Canada? I do. Family, family's still back home. Um, it's, you know, I, I go back to uh, recharge. Um, you know, I don't know if it's like the air or the water, something in Canada that just really calms me down, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, gets me out of the craziness and, it's also like a good reminder that, you know, this industry isn't the only thing that matters because when you're in LA, 
you can get very anxious about yeah. the next job, about promoting the next project. But when I'm back in Vancouver, I'm in nature. I'm, you know, um, I'm just surrounded by um, bigger things, yeah. bigger elements that that are bigger than just the industry. Yeah, when you're in LA, you can't get away from the industry. If you go out for a coffee, the barista has a script behind the yeah, coffee yeah. machine and everyone yeah, right? everyone wants yeah. to be somehow connected to it. So it is difficult just to clear your space, I think. And and uh yeah. Vancouver is good for that. Yeah, yeah. You, you definitely can get a like a sense of um entitlement out here. Um, and then when you're back home, especially when I'm with family, like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I do have to take out the trash. I do have to, you know, I'm just a regular person. And it's always a good thing. It's always a positive thing. A friend of mine uh, was in London no England a few years ago, and uh, he's a big Led Zeppelin fan and wanted to see Jimmy Page's house. And he's like, I got to see yeah. the Rock God's house. And so yeah, he yeah. arranges for someone to show him where the house is. And it's kind of a castle that he lives in, right, in, in okay. London. And so they pull up, and Jimmy Page is in sweatpants, taking out the recycling in the front yard. And I thought, that's <laughs> amazing. <laughs> yeah, we're all just people at the end yep. of the day, yeah. <laughs> I love so, that. All people just taking out the trash. That was Manny Jacinto on The Richard Krause Show. See him in I Want You Back, a great new rom-com co-starring Jenny Slate, and Charlie Day on Amazon Prime right now. In this segment, we'll unveil the identity of C.S. Porter, who, according to the bio on the back of his debut novel, Beneath Her Skin, which is available now wherever fine books are sold, according to this bio, he's a person of mystery, but for no longer. Today, we'll meet the real C.S. Porter. He's actually Christopher Porter, one of Canada's most renowned lighting technicians and cinematographers, and also an internationally exhibited photographer. On film, he's worked with some giants of the movie industry like Ang Lee, Jim Jarmusch, Vim Vendors, Lars von Trier on films like Brokeback Mountain, Ghost Dog, Down by Law, and Breaking the Waves. But when he was diagnosed with MS, he decided to try a third career as an author. The Globe and Mail called his book Beneath Her Skin a tough, carefully constructed mystery with a great setting and a great female detective. In short, for a debut, it's a sure winner and deserving of attention. It will keep readers glued to the page right until the very end. Here's C.S. Porter, Christopher Porter that is, who joined me via Zoom from his home in Nova Scotia. Tell me a little bit about the diagnosis that brought you to writing this book. There's so many elements to your career. We'll talk about those. But tell me a little bit about why you decided to turn to uh, writing after a lifetime spent making movies. Oh, and I miss it. So it, it really, really simple. I, I just can't really move around anymore. My MS is, you know, super bad. Um, and I get tired. And on a film set, you know, you've got to keep pretty active for sure. Um, and so it took me a little while to get the confidence together. And then um, I guess it was around COVID time. I just started writing. Um, I, I'd spent a year earlier writing, but this was the first attempt to put something really together. And how did your experience as a cinematographer, as a photographer, inform the creative process that went into writing beneath the, her skin? That it takes a lot of will and energy. You, it's not just, uh, you know, I've read books since I was a little guy. I love reading. And it 
I always thought it was pretty easy. You just wrote a book. <laughs> <laughs> Not the case, right? Um, and so there's that. And I, I think that anything you do in your life informs and helps you with the next thing you do. You know, I, I think it, it all builds somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it was the amount of effort that goes into something. So I was ready for that. And um, I think that my first approach to the book was, was quite visual because of where I come from. And was that in terms of, of creating the feel for the book? You live on the East Coast now, born in Chester, Nova Scotia, and you're living, you're living on the East Coast again. Uh, and this book is set in that, in that same kind of area. So did your visual eye uh, help create the backdrop that is so evocative in the book? There's no question. Yes. I'll say yes. So years and years of making photographs as well as shooting films. Um, and you learn to see something rather quickly and pick out details rather quickly and place yourself in, in junction to that. Mm-hmm. And that's what I tried to do with, with the writing, building the blocks of, of where we were. I wanted, I wanted to honor where I live, if, if you know what I mean. Yeah, you do know what I mean. So why a crime thriller then? I've always really loved them. Um, so when I, I, I used to travel an awful lot working on movies, like an awful lot. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was difficult to bring a heavy book. I don't mean in terms of page count. I mean, in terms of uh, density. Right. And crime thrillers were really fun for me. And there's some really well-written crime thrillers. Um, and I, w- I was able to read at night and then go to sleep and get up and go to work and always look forward to coming back and, and seeing what was going on in the book. Right. So it wasn't, it wasn't um, heavy and taxing me and making me sad or something <clears throat> or making me ponder my life or anything else like right. that, not philosophy or anything. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they were just great books. And I, I think from a long period ago, I always wanted to try my hand at it. You're listening to Christopher Porter on The Richard Krause Show. His book, Beneath Her Skin, is available now wherever fine books are sold. Writing a, a crime thriller, it's an interesting mechanism, I think, that you have to be very aware of, is that you have to give the reader enough information so that when things are revealed, they possibly could have figured it out themselves. Because if not, it feels like a bit of a cheat near the end. If all of a sudden uh, a character that you've never seen before shows up on the last page and they're the guilty person. So you have to keep that in mind. Uh, So tell me a little bit just about the mechanics of creating the story of Beneath Her Skin. what, What you said is so right. And a bad crime fiction is really disappointing to mm-hmm. read because of that. So um, I, I think that narrative in general is, is about um, coming up with solutions to problems in a sense, you know, whether it's love or whatever. So I, what I did first was I constructed um, like a framework mm-hmm. and then I found out where where the story was go- going in that regard and trying to make it so that it, it made sense, you know, and that our character could find her way through it because she leads us. Um, and I really like her. Tell me a little bit about writing Kez Morris because uh, the book is written from a female point of view. Uh, why take on the 
extra work of creating a female lead character for your first novel. That's also a crime novel and intricate in its uh, setup anyway. Writers, writers have told me this before that things, once you start, things come to you. Mm. She, she just really honestly appeared and there was no question. Right. She, she came uh, like, I was just, it was a detective and I was painting the, the, the situation as it were. And she just appeared it had, and it was her. That was it. Her name was um, Kika, but uh, Kika was too cute as right. a name for her. But I like the hard K, so she became Kess, um, like a Kestrel. Yeah, and that was it. It's no more sophisticated answer than that. Douglas Copeland told me one time that it's almost like his characters are standing on his shoulder, whispering into his ears, <laughs> telling him what they want to say and what they want to do. Is that what you're suggesting here with Kez? Well, to be honest, yeah. I mean... I'm writing another story right now and um, a dog appeared in it. I did not know it would. This sounds so flaky yeah. or something, but um, so this dog appeared and it's, it's name's Virginia Woolf. And it, it's, it's become a really strong character. And I talked to my son that night in England and he told me a story that he was walking along the street outside a little pub and there was a cute little dog there and he patted it and the woman came out who owned it. And she said, oh, you're patting Virginia Woolf. And I, well, isn't that funny, right? How, how, so there's two dogs named Virginia Woolf. <laughs> All I'm saying is that, um, yeah, it, it, it's an instant and it happens. It does. This is just the first of a planned, at least two books featuring this character, right? I don't know how that got to be said mm. or how that got to be assumed. Um, but the second one is um, constructed. Right. So, yes, you're right. But I don't know how that got out. Right. I, I think it's really interesting that that crime fiction is the one form of, of literature that um, seems to call out for more than one, doesn't it, somehow? It does. I mean, I think that people like being around smart characters. I think they like being around characters who are doing good who are trying to help them. I think there's probably a lot of reasons for that. And I think if you look back, you know, in the movies and in television, crime and detective stories have been with us forever. So uh, there's a reason people like them. And yes. I think that true crime, this wave of popularity that tr true crime is having right now, I think it's because we live somewhat vicariously through the true crime we're just happy it's not happening to us, but we but we know it gets our endorphins up or something reading about it. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I'm safe. I'm safe. <laughs> That's right. That's yeah. right. The Globe and Mail, the Toronto Star uh, have yeah. loved it. So uh, that do you read reviews? Do they, do they mean anything yeah. to you? After years of working in movies, I wonder. Well, um, they got sent. Mm -hmm. You know, they got sent to me and I, I read them and I went... Uh, I was just happy that it's out there, you know? That was Christopher Porter on The Richard Krause Show. Beneath Your Skin is available wherever fine books are sold. In this segment, we're going to meet Abba Amukwandu. You know her from This Hour Has 22 Minutes, but today we're talking about her new CBC gem show called Best in Miniature. 
It's a competition show featuring inspiring stories of skilled miniaturists building their dream homes in miniature form, in itty-bitty form. That's a trend that has gone viral on social media platforms like TikTok and YouTube. Abba joined me via Zoom from Halifax, where she is preparing to shoot the next season of this hour's 22 Minutes. So let's talk first a little bit about miniature houses and that kind of thing. Is this anything that you had had any experience with before taking on the host job on this show? It's really funny because like, I've always liked miniatures. Um, I just, uh, I never knew anything about them. Like I'd always end up seeing miniature like cooking videos or like house making on my instagram explorer page on twitter and it was like became like a source of comfort for me so i'd come home from work and literally just watch those for like an hour um and then uh last summer i just got um, a dm randomly on instagram um from the casting director asking me if i was interested in auditioning and i was shocked because i was like this is such like not even a secret like hobby but like you know, something private that I kind of never talk about because it feels so niche. Um, but it felt crazy that, um, you know, they were making a show about it. It felt um, like serendipity. It was really, uh, really shocking to get that um, audition call. Well, it's not really all that niche, though, as it turns out. Yeah. I, I would have I said that early on. I would have thought that this was something that, uh, you know, wasn't uh, that widespread, but there are experts from the UK who were judges here and you've got people from all over the world competing. So tell me a little bit about what you learned about this world and just how widespread the the love of miniaturism. Is that a word? I don't know. I, Miniatures I, are. <laughs> honestly, it, I feel like if the show goes well, if people really tune in, miniaturism might be a word. There we go. Um, <laughs> but I think that... Um, Basically, it was really surprising to see, you know, these miniatures being built. I've never like really watched it happen in person before. So to see the um, the amount of skills that you have to be good at at the same time was really shocking to me. You have to be you have to be capable of doing um, correct and accurate measurements. You have to um, have a great aesthetic sense of how to put a house together. Um, you have to you know think about all the logistics. But what was really surprising to me was how kind of a community it is. They hadn't known each other for very long, but it seemed as though they were all working with each other as if they had been a part of the same miniature like class for the, you know, for years. So I think that that was the most surprising how sweet everyone is. In an epic competition of tiny proportions. Make it many. 11 elite miniaturists from around the world. Oh my gosh, I am here. Compete to craft their dream homes. One tiny room at a time. Here we go. And you have to be able to do all those things, but very, very small. So the work is incredibly uh, detailed and it must be, and that must add a, a level of difficulty to it that uh, is off the charts. Absolutely. It's really tense. I like, I'm, I applaud them because, they have, <laughs> you know, very little, very um, few hours to complete entire rooms in these miniature houses. And yet they remain so kind to each other. You're listening to Abba Amakwando on the Richard Krause show. See her in best in miniature on CBC gem right now. Well, that's the thing about competition shows. I mean, I think Survivor probably set the tone for that where everyone, you're trying to vote everyone off the island and everyone's an enemy. And there's always those interviews that they have, the confessional interviews where they say, well, I hate 
yeah. Billy. And I'm going to get Billy out of here no matter what. And yeah. it has kind of put me off competition shows a little bit because it's so mean spirited. And I don't really think we need any more of that in the world right now. So this show isn't like that. Not necessarily. It's really nice to see because it's very tongue in cheek at times. Like the contestants are like, I'm going to be the villain of the season or I'm, <laughs> you know, I want everyone to know that I'm the best, but they're joking. It's very, right. very sweet, especially because um, you get to see them really helping each other, sharing mm. materials um, and excited to see each other's work. The, the actual idea here is that they are building in miniature. And I don't know what scale it is. It's one to 12 scale. So it's very small. Uh, they're building their dream houses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's incredibly like personal too. That's the best aspect of the show because you get to see everyone's um, everyone's personality come out. There's it's almost impossible to copy each other because they're all completely different, um, personality wise, aesthetically. And without giving anything away, because people haven't seen the show yet, but what surprised you uh, about all of this? Was there one? particular bit of I don't know furniture or style of house or or anything that really kind of uh uh surprised you I think the amount of detail that certain Mm -hmm. people put into their work was shocking like um and I'm not just talking like detail that you can see right away like you need a magnifying glass um the amount of um time that it takes to make those like incredibly detailed features um for these houses is crazy like you you know take a full hour to to finish one inch of something sometimes so that was the most surprising it it felt like watching a miracle happen and so shooting the show there must be a lot of just waiting around for you what do you do while they're building uh one to one twelfth scale rocking chairs so i go in um for a few hours and kind of watch them work talk to them then i go in again with the judges but within um, the downtime, we'd have about like an hour and a half between each visit. I honestly, I can't even remember. I feel like I annoyed the crew yeah. <laughs> a lot. I was singing. I was doing a lot of just like general yelling, not at anyone or anything, and not even out of anger, just making yeah. noise. Um, making yourself but, known. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I spent a lot of time singing and dancing in the little tent that we had set up um, with our stylists and our makeup um artists so yeah it was fun when the judges are judging each of the competitors what is it that they're looking for they're looking for a whole list of criteria so they're looking for it to be aesthetically pleasing like neat um they want it to um be also um what's the word they they want it to make sense um physically as well like Mm -hmm. it can't just look like a dollhouse it has to be functional um, they also want it to be exactly to scale. And that's the biggest thing because you can, it's very obvious when something um, isn't to scale in the room that you've built that is to scale, you know? Um, they're also looking for a storyline, which is my favorite aspect because mm-hmm. it's just, you're not just looking at a house and, you know, admiring its beauty. You're like there for the story as well. And did you learn anything? Will you be making miniatures? Did you become a miniaturist? <laughs> I've been asked a few times, but I have such poor dexterity. Like I drop my phone on my face all the time. I don't think I could ever get into um, miniatures, but it's definitely gotten me into like a more artistic space. Like I've started scrapbooking again because of the miniature show. Pressure, pressure, pressure. Who doesn't like winning? And whose tiny dream will come to an end. Go tiny or go home. I'm Abba Mukwando, and this 
is best in miniature. That was Abba Amaquando on The Richard Krause Show. You can see her on CBC Gem right now in a great new show called Best in Miniature. Big thanks to all my guests today, including C.S. Porter, a.k.a. Christopher Porter, the author of Beneath Her Skin. You can find that book wherever you buy fine books. And a big old thanks to Manny Jacinto. Watch him right now in I Want You Back, a really super funny rom-com that's on Amazon Prime right now. A big thanks to Kevin Hearn. Find his album There and Then, Solo Piano Improvisations, wherever you buy fine music. It's great stuff. Check it out. As always, though, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weird, and we'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.